Today we come to the words of the living God according to the Apostle Peter. So let's read together 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 22. 1 Peter 1 verse 22. These are the words of the living God. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades or falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That ends the paragraph that we're going to look at today. So here's my, I'm just going to give you up front the theme for today, and, and we'll look at the text of Scripture here and uh, elaborate on this. So here's, here's the theme. That God's grace produces a love for people, repentance from sin, and a desire for spiritual growth. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to show you those three points, or all my three points, which I believe are coming from the text of Scripture here. And so I'll elaborate on those three points, showing how God's grace produces this holy living in our lives. And I say holy living because if you back up to chapter 1, verse 15, notice what Peter tells us to do. In chapter 1, verse 15, he says, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So Peter commanded us there to be holy. In other words, to be distinct, unique, and separate from creation. That's the way God is. And so we're to be like God, made in His image. So Peter commands us to be holy. And so what Peter is, is going to do throughout the book now, he's going to elaborate on what does it look like to be holy. How do you live a holy life? Well, Peter tells us, and he gives us three ways to do that. Uh, here's the response of holy living that he applies to our lives here in three areas, which are the three main points of this message. So number one, what does God's grace produce Well, it produces a sincere love for people. Now, specifically, Paul, or not Paul, sorry, Peter mentions uh, the one another, you'll notice there. So he's specifically referring to Christians here when he's going to answer some questions here for us. My first question to think about is this. When were believers enabled to love? Because that doesn't come naturally for us. So when did this happen? Well, you read Galatians chapter 5, you know that love is a part of that fruit of the Holy Spirit that God works in us. So the answer is when God regenerates us, when He converts us, He gives us that new heart, then He enables us to love. You'll notice in verse 22 here, you'll see that phrase, obedience to the truth. It's kind of hidden in in that phrase there, but the idea is it means that when you were saved, God enabled you to obey His truth. So the idea is here, because of salvation, because of His regenerating work and His conversion in your life, believers are now enabled to love. That's what he's talking about there. Verse 22, he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. That's enabled by God when He saves us. Question number two is this, who are believers to love? 
who are believers to love? Because the scripture here says, you are to love one another. Now, who is that? Well, some of your Bibles might actually have translated it as brethren, and you know that's referring to other Christians. So specifically, in this text, God's telling us we are to love other Christians, those who have been saved, who have been regenerated. How are believers to love? Again, verse 22 gives us some things here. For one thing, we are commanded in verse 22. It's, this is a command. It says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The Greek word there is agapao. Some of you may be more familiar with the word agape. The idea is there, this is this love that we are to have. The godlike love is to be spread to others. It, this love is exercised by your will as opposed to your emotions. It's, it's not a, uh, the other kind of loves that we use in English that's often driven by your emotions. No, this one's driven by your will. It's not determined by someone's beauty. It's not, you know, it's not like, you know, I, I'm the, the kind of love maybe I first had for my wife. I look at her and, wow, beautiful woman. I love her. You know, a lot of guys are like that, right? They, they, they think they're in love with a woman just because they, they think she's beautiful. But that's not the kind of love God's talking about here. It's, it's not where you think someone is desirable. You know, it's, I like that person because they have all the same likes that I do. We're compatible in that way. Now, that is not what God's talking about here. This is, this is an, an intentional choice of your will to place your love on another individual. That's how believers are to love. And then God specifically gives us some ways to love. Love is to be, number one, notice, sincere. The opposite of that is, your, is hypocrisy. In other words, you're to, to be genuine in your love. Don't be a fake. Don't, don't say one thing and then do something else. Right? We, we, we do that thing. For example, God says, love one another. I'll give you one specific way to do that. How many of us say, hey brother, hey sister, I'll pray for you. And then we forget about that brother and sister during the week and we never pray for them. Well, God's saying that's not a sincere love. Right? Sincere love, you do what you said you were going to do. It's not, it's without hypocrisy. In other words, it's sincere and genuine. It's also brotherly. Love is to be brotherly. I don't know if you noticed that there. It is, it's this obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Well, we could elaborate on that one. The kind of love that brothers are supposed to have for one another. This familial kind of a, a love. We're supposed to have that kind of love for one another. It's also earnest. It's earnest. It's love one another earnestly, the Scripture says. It just means you, you're going all out. You're reaching to your furthest extent. It's not a halfway, half-hearted kind of a love. It's a strong love. It doesn't come from something that is external. It doesn't come from some legalistic requirement that you throw in there. And on the contrary, love is an attitude that is compelled from within inside us. The Holy Spirit bringing this fruit out within us. And that's why verse 22 says here, it's from the heart. From the heart. So this love, of course, only comes from the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Again, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and all the others. The Holy Spirit does this work in us. But God also says here, number four, that love is to be pure. Pure. Remember reading the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, some of the things it says, for example, love's not to be rude, love's to be kind, love is uh, to... to um, uh, you know, obviously we we rejoice in the truth, not in sin and things that are false. 
Love wants what's best for other people. We hope for the best. So if you love somebody in this kind of a way, then it's pure. It's not mixed with sin. Hope's the best, not rude. Some of those, you think about some of those things there in 1 Corinthians 13. That, that'll show you what, what a pure love will look like. Fourth question to consider here is why should believers love? You say, man, this is hard. And it is, because it's, it's a supernatural work of God in you. So why? Well, God kind of helps motivate us here a little bit. How, how does this happen, if you will? Well, verse, according to 20, verse 23, Christians have been born again. You've been born again, like what Jesus talked about to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You have been born again. You were made a new creature in Christ. The old passes away. So now you have this ability you didn't have before. So verse 23, you notice, since you have been born again, you have this, this ability to love now. So love is consistent with the new life in Christ. Uh, it's interesting, this phrase here is in the perfect tense. Anything in Greek in perfect tense is just showing us that this new birth here is something that occurred in your past, but has ongoing results into the present. So yes, your salvation occurred at one point in your past. But your salvation is something that has ongoing effects, is producing this love in you even now. And one of those results, of course, is that believers show love for one another. But God's grace does more than produce love for one another. Number two, God's grace produces repentance from sin. You'll see that in chapter 2, verse 1. By the way, chapter divisions are not inspired. Okay, I hope you realize that. They're helpful so that we can be looking literally on the same page, same place, uh, but they're not inspired of God. So I do believe the context here is continuing on into chapter 2. It's showing us that God's grace here is producing repentance from sin. So look at verse 1. It says, So put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Notice it mentions all there several times. Now, the verb put away just means that we're to reject these things. Sometimes it was referred to taking off your soiled garments. Like some of you have worked on farms. You've done dirty work before. You know what this is like, right? You're doing really dirty work out on the farm or on your property or section somewhere. You get your clothes all dirty. You don't just walk in and sit down at the dinner table, right? Mama ain't going to be happy if you do that. I've tried it. It doesn't work. <laughs> get out of here. Get those clothes off. Take a shower and come in with something clean, right? That's the idea here. God's saying, take that stuff off. Get rid of it. Reject it. In ancient Christian baptism ceremonies, it was interesting those being baptized would put away the robe that they would wear to their Christian baptism that they would bring to their ceremony. And then following their baptism, the, the church would bestow a new clean robe and put on them a, a, a clean robe that they would receive from the church. Now, why did they do that? Why do you think they did that? Well, I, I think this is, we might try this at our next baptism. I don't know. I, I kind of like this idea. I hope you do too. But the idea was exchanging clothes symbolized a spiritual reality in their life. It symbolized salvation. It symbolized laying aside the old life, rejecting that, taking up the new life. Which is, by the way, which was what baptism is also supposed to be showing. See, as you go down in the water, showing death in Christ, we're raised to new life in Christ. And so, if someone is truly saved, then they must reject all those sins. You say, well, what sins are we to put off? Well, Peter gives us some examples here. This is not an exhaustive list, but it certainly gives us an idea. Notice he first of all mentions malice in verse 1. 
That's an all-inclusive word just referring to all kinds of sin, a general word for wickedness. And uh, that's one reason why you'll see probably in your Bible it has the word all in front of the word malice. Just an all-encompassing word for all types of sin. Then the next one is deceit. Literally refers to bait and fishhook. If you've ever gone fishing, I enjoy fishing. You can learn some things from fishing. Uh, but the idea of the word deceit is it just denotes dishonesty and treachery like, like I do when I go fishing, right? I mean, when you go fishing, what's the object of fishing, right? The object is not to give a free lunch to all the fish, right? Although that's what happens to me sometimes. I don't catch anything, and it's really frustrating. And you can feel all those little fish down there taking off the bait off your hook, and they're not taking the hook, which is the point, right? Like you see in this picture here. That little lure has hooks on it. And it's supposed to deceive the fish into thinking it's a smaller fish, so it bites it and then gets caught on the hook. And then the idea is for you not to give a free lunch to the fish, but hopefully the idea is for the fish to give you a free lunch. Right? That's, that's the whole purpose of deceiving the fish. And God's using that word here. Uh, that's the idea here uh, with the word deceit. Now, that's okay to do to a fish. <laughs> but God's saying, don't do that to one another. Don't deceive each other and trick each other and be dishonest with one another. That's not right. And then the third word God uses here is hypocrisy. That word describes any behavior that's not genuine or that is uh, consistent with what you really believe or what you say you believe, anyway. It's interesting, you'll see in this picture here, uh, the word hypocrisy, when it was originally used in Greek, was used of Greek actors. Did you know that Greek actors often would wear these masks, like these here? And, and of course, the mask, you'll notice some are frowning, some are smiling, Right uh, With the mask, you would know the emotion that the actor was supposed to betray. Even though you couldn't see the actors, all of the actor's face, the mask showed you what was supposed to be going on in the play. And that's the idea of hypocrisy, according to the ancient Greeks. It was, it was behavior that wasn't genuine or consistent with what you, you, you were saying. Well, anyway... So that's how the word was originally used. But typically, we, we can be hypocrites today by you say one thing and do something else. Or you do one thing, you say something different. Right? Your words, actions don't match, in other words. If you do that, you're a hypocrite. The fourth sin that God tells us to repent of here is envy. That's an attitude where you resent other people's prosperity. <clears throat> oh, I'll just be honest with you. This is one that I struggle with. Okay? Let me open my heart to you. All right? Um, you know, some of you have some nice things that God has blessed you with. Nice property. You live in nice places, nice houses. Sometimes God blesses people with boats or batches or all sorts of things. Okay? All right? I'll be quite honest with you. It, I, uh, I have to repent of envy at times, right? So, you know, if you live on that nice property up there by Prangia, um, that's, that might be a sin that I have to repent of, okay? <laughs> I, I might think, I might, I might struggle in my heart to, ooh, man, that would be nice if I lived there, or whatever, right? Okay, but God doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to rejoice with one another and not envy what God has given to somebody else. And uh, one of the problems with envy is it, it leads to other sins. It, it can lead us to, to hold grudges against somebody, to be bitter, or, or maybe even hate somebody else. There's a story in the Old Testament, right? Remember the king, he wanted Naboth's vineyard, for example. And, and his, his envy caused him to go ahead and kill Naboth to get his vineyard. And that's, what ha that's one of the problems with envy. We might say, well, that's just inside me. It's just in my heart. It, 
It doesn't matter because I'm not affecting anybody else. Well, here's the problem. You get a hold of it now because envy can lead to all sorts of other things. And then the last one God mentions is slander. Slander. This is just uh, basically defamation of someone's character where your, your, your tongue, as James says, this little little thing here that has great power can slice people and dice them up and destroy them. So don't believe what people used to tell me when I was a little kid in elementary school. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Right? You ever heard that? Rubbish. <laughs> Just rubbish. I got a great Greek word for you. Greek word called rubbish. Right? That's not true. God says we need to watch our tongues. The slander can hurt us deeply. Well, Peter's list of specific sins here, of course, not exhaustive. It's not complete. The Bible gives us many more, but it is representative of evil. This is evil. This is what evil looks like. This is not holy living. And God's grace will help us and enable us, if you will, to repent of this type of sin. And so this list, I hope, use it as a call to confession, as a call to repentance, to turn from that to God. See, without confession and repentance, you're not going to be able to do what the next verse talks about. Verse 2 Well, let's look at it and let's see what verse 2 tells us to do because here we see that grace, God's grace, then produces a desire for spiritual growth. You are not going to be able to grow spiritually in Christ if you hold on to your sin, if you love and embrace your sin, your spiritual growth will be hindered. That's what Peter's telling us here. So look at verse 2. So put off those things... Here's the principle of replacement, by the way. When God tells you to put off something, He always tells you put something on in its place. Replace it. Look at verse 2. He says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So Notice God's grace produces this desire in our hearts that we would desire to be Christ-like, godly. We would, we would grow, be conformed in the image of Christ. Notice in verse 2, though, here, a command. We're commanded to crave something. We're commanded to long for something. This is, by the way, this is not bibliolatry. Uh, let me just give you one ditch that uh, some people fall into. You know, this is, this is something that, that some, it happens sometimes to some people where they have this, this longing, this craving, this desire for the Bible that turns into a bibliolatry, where it's, it's, what happens is, it's, in some respects, the Bible trumps God. The Bible replaces God, where they, they love, and sometimes they even love a particular translation of the Bible, and they set aside God in the process. I'm just calling that bibliolatry. I don't know what else to call that. It's, it's an idolatry. Nothing's to replace God, including even the Bible itself. So we need to be aware that's, that's one place we can fall into, one ditch. But the other pendulum swing is, is we go way over on the other side and we, we ignore God's Word. We have no desire for spiritual growth. So how, how, how can we have this desire for spiritual growth. Well, this particular passage here gives us some suggestions. And and I'm going to give you five viewpoints from this text here that will hopefully lead you and me to a stronger, more consistent desire for the Word of God. Number one, believers, and, and this is kind of application, by the way, but notice here, number one, believers should remember their life source. You need to remember your life source. Look at verse 1 again. It says, So put away all these various sins. Now I just want you to notice the first part there. Because the ESV, at least here, starts in verse 1 with the word, so. I'm not exactly sure which Bible you're looking at. 
But the idea is here, some, even some other translations use the word therefore. And when you see words like so, therefore, wherefore, it's pointing you back to the previous context. And both words like so and therefore, in this case, are, rep- are pointing back to verses 23 to 25 of chapter 1. Talking about this imperishable seed. This living and abiding Word of God. And you say, well, what's the point here? Well, God's Word was the source of salvation. Paul said in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. So God uses His Word to bring you to Him, Himself, because God works through it to create new life in us. That's the way it's always been. God's Word brings life. Read Genesis chapter 1. We see it even there. God's Word brings life into the universe. When God says, let there be light, there was light. When God says, let there be fish of the sea and animals, birds of the heavens, there was life. God still uses His Word to bring life. In this case, spiritual life into believers. So, that word so there is just a reminder. It's a reminder to remember God's saving power through His Word. We need to remember that. We need to remember where we've come from. If we do that, that will help us immensely. Number two, believers should eliminate their sins. You need to eliminate your sins by God's grace. <laughs> that can happen. Now, striving to eliminate sins here is a requirement to sustain the, the desire for God's Word. You say, well, why? Why? See, if we cling to our sins, it's actually going to drive us in the opposite direction from truth. We need God's truth. But see, our sin drives us away from God and His truth. Now this point is so important that God is commanding us to do this, put it away. It's kind of like eating rubbish. I wouldn't recommend that. Please don't go home and do that. But imagine imagine somebody else because of course you've never done this, but imagine you go you go into someone's rubbish bin and you just start eating the rubbish. Not your rubbish, of course, somebody else's. And then you just kind of fill up your stomach from eating that rubbish. And then, and then you go home and, and uh, your spouse has a beautiful, or your family has a beautiful meal sitting there on the table, and, and you sit down and you say, enjoy, right? The problem is your stomach's full. You've eaten rubbish. And so you're going to have a hard time having an appetite for the healthy food because you've just gorged yourself on rubbish, right? Well, sadly... We do this spiritually speaking sometimes. And I like what John Owen said along many hundreds of years ago. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Do you see what happens there? Now that was in a book that I read a couple years ago, many years ago actually, called The Mortification of Sin. And the idea is there we, we have to mortify, we have to kill our sin, put it to Death, it's a continual process. The sin keeps rearing its ugly head like weeds in your garden, right? <laughs> right? You, you can even spray Roundup on the, those nasty weeds. And Are they permanently dead? Are weeds forever gone out of your paddock or your garden just because you've picked one out or picked many out or sprayed them? No, unfortunately, that's part of the curse. The fall of mankind into sin, right? We, we have weeds in the garden. We have weeds in our paddocks. It's a continual process, and that's the way it is, spiritually speaking. You've got to continually be killing that sin, or it's going to be killing you. Another quote that I found helpful that's in, I've written in my Bible a long time ago. Don't know where it comes from, though. It says that sin will keep you from the Bible, or the Bible will keep you from sin. You ever found that to be true? When you're faithfully in God's Word and you have this great communion going on with God day after day, sin doesn't look very appealing, does it? 
But then when we get away from God and our, our communion with Him and fellowship with Him is, is hindered for whatever reasons, then sin becomes more desirable, doesn't it? That's the way, that's the way it works. It depends on what you're feeding. So what are you feeding? Are you feeding your flesh? Are you feeding your spirit? Paul said in Galatians, walk in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the, the lust of the flesh or the desires of the flesh. So we, we need to eliminate the sin. Number three, believers should admit their need. How are you going to get help if you, don't, if you don't start there, right? Admit the need. So like, like a baby, a newborn infant in verse 2, we're to long for this pure spiritual milk. So what do we need? Well, Christians need God's truth. Just like an infant, a little baby needs milk. Those of you who had babies, you know that baby can't talk to you. Well, with audible words anyway, right? So how does the baby communicate to you to say, hey, I'm, I'm hungry, feed me? What does it do? Usually cries, right? That's what infants do. The way God designed them, I guess. And so, so Peter's using that here, something we understand physically, to, to contrast that, comparing a baby's desire to what a believer should desire, which of course is God's Word. Now it's normal for a baby to crave his mother's milk. That's normal. And so this longing here is focused. It's relentless. Why? Because if a baby doesn't get that milk, it's going to die. The very life of that baby depends on its mother's milk. And that's the point that Peter's trying to make. You and I also, our very life, our very spiritual growth is dependent on God's truth. We need it. Spiritual life depends on God meeting our needs through His Word. And it's interesting, the words here in the text, the word, for example, the word long in some of your Bibles is an imperative verb, a command telling the believers are to desire something. We have a strong craving for something. And Peter's comparing the object of craving as pure milk. Pure just means it's uncontaminated. Unlike the what the Chinese were doing with their infant formula. Don't add in plastic, please. We don't want to feed plastic to babies. Not good, right? It's contaminated. God's saying, this pure, this milk needs to be pure, uncontaminated. You say, well, what's the point? Well, believers are to crave something that's unmixed. It's pure truth from God. And in case you missed the point, what is this milk referring to? It's referring to spiritual food. Spiritual food. So whether you're a recent convert or you've been saved a long time, hopefully you're mature in the faith if that's the case, craving God's Word is something that is essential for your spiritual growth. Let me give you some application here, okay? Just to be practical. Uh, beware of informational junk food, <laughs> right? Uh, let me elaborate on that. So beware of informational junk food. So we can get informational junk food from all sorts of places. Uh, it can come from the radio, your television, the Internet, even games, books, and sadly, even from pulpits. Yeah, even from pulpits, you can get informational junk food. Here's the point. All that stuff can cause spiritual malnourishment where people, they can be crying out like a newborn infant for, for nourishment. They want to be fed. And they might even go to a church to get it, thinking that's a good place to get it. And then coming from the pulpit is informational junk food. It's like needing something healthy to eat, getting... You, you need some vegetables and protein, but instead all you get is Tim Tams. They taste good. Yeah, they taste real good, don't they? But uh, you don't want to just keep eating all that chocolate and sugar and who knows what else is in there, right? So beware of that. You know, it causes that spiritual malnourishment. Eventually, 
uh, can dull your appetite for genuine spiritual food. Uh, a second point needs to be we need to think about here is you need to commit to regular nourishment from God's Word. So just like you need th- that spiritual nourishment, and, and you, you, need, you need physical nourishment to have a healthy body, healthy mind, well, it's the same in your spiritual life. To grow spiritually, you need consistent growth there. You need regular nourishment. See, it wouldn't be enough if you had today's Sunday, right? Let's say you had a big, healthy meal today. You go home and, and you have this banquet of beautiful food, right? But then, but then the rest of the week you get no food. Or, or you just chew on a few Tim Tams and eat a few potato chips or I don't know. But, you know, that sort of thing, right? How healthy are you going to be if, if, that would, if that was your whole week? Right? You had a great meal at the beginning of the week, but the rest of the week you're just nothing or junk food. That wouldn't be good, would it? But I wonder how many Christians, you know, they come on Sunday to a church, they're, they're fed spiritually during the preaching of God's Word. Hopefully it's, it's, it's nourishing to your soul. But then the rest of the week, not a whole lot going on. You're, you're not feeding your own soul. So let me encourage you, Commit to regular feeding of your soul. Now that could look like all sorts of things. So I mean, you can listen to sermons during the week. You can, of course, read your own Bible, memorize Scripture, meditate upon the Scriptures. After all, Scripture says you're to be meditating upon God's Word day and night. Number four, believers should pursue their spiritual growth. See, that's something you need to do. You need to do this, according to verse 2. Like a newborn infant, you're commanded by Scripture here to long for the pure spiritual milk that by it, that spiritual milk, you may grow up into salvation. Isn't it sad to see someone who's malnourished? Maybe they're not eating enough or see people who eat too much or, or all they eat is junk food it seems uh, it just I think it was just last week I read about some woman who was 500 kilos whoa that's sad or you see these these people who are really skinny there's like no meat and bones on their body right it's like do you eat anything sad very sad when they're malnourished and weak but God's saying it's even more sad when someone is spiritually malnourished. And even more sad to see a believer who is spiritually malnourished. All believers should be motivated to grow strong, to be mature in Christ, enjoying greater blessings, being more useful for Christ. How can that be? How? Well, we can't do it by ourselves, number one. God's the one's going to cause you to grow through His spiritual food, which we call the Bible. Now, how do we know this? Well, well, if you notice verse 2, it's interesting. It uses a phrase here, may grow. At least that's what my Bible says. May grow is just a passive verb. It just literally means that it may grow you. <laughs> so if something's passive, it means... The action's being done to you. Something outside of you is doing the work in you. You say, what's the point? Well, it's by the intake of the truth that the Holy Spirit is going to grow and mature believers. Well, let me ask you this, my friend. How healthy is your diet? And of course, by diet, I mean your spiritual diet. How healthy is your spiritual diet? A healthy diet requires two things. We've alluded to this. The text alludes to it. So you need nourishment. You need truth. You need God's truth. You can't have a healthy diet without that truth. But you also need consistency with that truth. Consistently fed by the truth. So here's a little equation I've put up here on the screen for you that you need nourishment, but it needs to be consistent. Not just like once a week or every other day or whatever. The spiritual growth will happen as you're, you're being, your soul's being fed consistently. 
Now, what is the object of our growth? Well, verse 2 says that through God's spiritual food, you may grow up to salvation. So what does that mean? Well, God wants you to grow up, number one. He wants you to be mature. He doesn't want you to remain as a spiritual infant. How does that happen? Well, the Word's able to grow you here into... By the way, this is the final aspect of salvation. So my friend, here's the point. One day, God is going to complete the work that He has begun in you. Paul said that in Philippians. He's going to complete it. The work that He began in you with your justification is going to continue on into sanctification and He's going to complete it with glorification. He said so. The issue is, do you believe Him? So, let me ask you this. Are you discontent? In a good way. <laughs> All right. There is such a thing as holy discontent, and we ought to be like Paul, discontent with our present spiritual condition. We, we need to be. So are you allowing God to grow you through His Word? Don't, don't be discontent with the status quo in your life. You ought to be wanting to grow more conformed into the image of Christ. Now, there's some things we need to watch out for. Two ditches. We can fall off the road quite easily here. Number one, where you, you just try to do this alone without God. Just kind of go through your life, just cruising along. You think you don't need God for this spiritual growth. Well, that would be a lie. You'd be deceived because you do need God. The other ditch that you can also fall into is where some people just don't even try. <laughs> they they don't do anything. You know, it's, it's the, the old philosophy of let go and let God philosophy. That also is a lie and a ditch you can fall into. Neither one of those options works. We need to read and study and memorize and meditate upon God's Word so that God then can use His Word to conform you into the image of Christ. That's His plan. Believers need to pursue their spiritual growth. And then number five, last of all, we see here that believers should investigate their blessings. Investigate your blessings. See, we need to be reminded, continually reminded of what has God done and doing in our lives. And I say that because if you look at verse 3, notice, at least in my Bible, verse 3 starts with the word if. If is a conditional word. It just means that it's introducing the facts or conditions here that are necessary for a proposition to be true. Some of your Bibles might actually translate it as since. And that would be an appropriate way to translate this. And so Peter's saying since his readers had tasted God and His works, since his readers had experienced the goodness of God in their conversion and salvation, Well, they already knew how blessed they were. At least at one point they knew that. The question is, are they reminding of of themselves of that truth? Therefore, they should have desired more of this goodness through feeding on God's Word. And so, my friend, we ought to regularly study the blessings of our salvation. Or, I like the way Jerry Bridges says it, preach the Gospel to yourself every day. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. We ought to remember the times that God's answered our prayers. Remember the times God has touched our lives in some way through His greatness or His goodness. Now, how important is this? Well, let me give you, well, let me put it this way. Here's one of the problems that Israel, ancient Israel had. God says they forgot Him and they, they rebelled against Him because they forgot His works. They forgot His works. So God would tell them to put up these memorials like when they crossed over the Jordan River and God divides the river so they're able to cross the river into the Promised Land. God says, take some rocks out of the river, put the stones up there in a pile, make a memorial so that you remember My works. Then a little kid is supposed to be walking around Israel and he sees a pile of stones and he says, Hey, Daddy! What's that pile of rocks there for? 
And then daddy's supposed to tell his son, well, son, see, it was, it was here that God opened the Jordan River so, so that we were able to cross over into the promised land. And God gave us this land that He had promised to us. He's the one who did this. Well, at some point along the way, fathers weren't telling their children what God had done, and so they forgot God's works. And then they, and that led them into idolatry. That's why this is important, my friends. That's why it's important. So you and I need to investigate our blessings. So let me ask you this then. What are you doing, practically speaking, to help continually remind yourself of God's works? Do it. Find some way to do this. All right, there's many ways you can do this. Let me just give you some ways that our family does this, or at least I'm trying to do this. Uh, for example, we have we have like Christian art that's on our walls in our house. For example, I've got a piece of art with Daniel. He's in the lion's den, surrounded by lions, and he's praying to God to deliver him from the lions. Right? Every time I see that piece of art, I'm reminded of God's works. Memorize verses. I've got, I've got verses on my walls in various places to remind me of God. Uh, I've got other things, like uh, I've got a plaque sitting on the desk in my office that talks about God's greatness and His goodness and the various ways that looks like. You can listen to sermons. You can li- uh, my wife loves listening to podcasts. She's, you know, I, I walk into the bathroom in the morning and she's getting ready for the day and She's listening to podcasts, podcasts usually from Family Life today, and she's over and over rehearsing God's works. I like reading blogs, fellowshipping with Christians, take them to a cafe, rehearse God's works, investigate who God is and what He's doing. Look at God's creation. Wherever you are, that creation is speaking to you, Psalm 19 says. In fact, it does it day and night, even when it's dark. Look up at the stars. The stars are speaking and declaring God's glory. And of course, you can read good Christian books that'll drive you to God. So, I want to end with a beautiful story that illustrates how Christians ought to be grateful for what Christ has done for them. There was a man who was on a three-story scaffold. He was at a construction site. And this building engineer was walking up there on the third story of the scaffolding, and he tripped, and he fell toward the ground in what appeared was going to be a fatal fall. But right below the scaffolding, there was a, a, a laborer who looked up just as this engineer was falling to the ground, and he realized he was, he was standing exactly where the engineer was going to fall. And the impact, well, by the way, what he did was he just, he didn't have really have time to move, so he just braced himself and absorbed the full impact of the man's fall. The impact slightly injured the engineer, but severely hurt the laborer. The brutal collision fractured almost every bone in his body, and after he recovered from those injuries, he was severely disabled and never recovered fully from that. Years later, a reporter asked the former construction laborer how the engineer had, tra- had treated him since the accident. The handicapped man told the reporter, quote, He gave me half of all he owns, including a share of his business. He's constantly concerned about my needs, and never lets me want for anything. Almost every day he gives me some token of thanks or remembrance. End quote. Well, too often, as believers, we're, we're like, we're ungrateful, aren't we? <laughs> we're just ungrateful. We don't remember, continually investigate what Christ has done for us. We're, believers are unlike that grateful engineer we just read about. Christians forget that on Calvary, about 2,000 years ago, there was a man, the God-man became a substitute 
He was the one who caught the full impact of God's wrath. He bore your wrath. And He rescued them, believers, as believers, uh, sorry, the unbelievers were hurling toward eternity in hell. God poured out His wrath on the perfect sacrifice, the sinless Lord of the universe. Christ sacrificed Himself for all who believe. So what does that mean for us? It means that believers ought to be consumed then with gratitude with the Lord Jesus Christ. To gratitude, sorry, to the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the proposition that I want you to walk away with today. I propose to you today that God wants you to live a holy life by loving people and loving the Bible. Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Jesus Christ. Thank You for loving mankind and sending Your only Son to pay the penalty to deal with our greatest problem. May we understand what has been done for us, which of course we could have never done for ourselves. We, we could never bear Your wrath. Not in heaven anyway. And so we ask that we would understand the substitutionary atonement. May we understand Your grace. May we see how it, it is to be producing uh, these various things we've seen here from First Peter. Father, we ask that as Your grace enables us to do this, we, we would grow more and more in Your grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Open our eyes that we would see wonderful things from Your Word. May we be doers of the Word. Since we're commanded to be holy as You're holy, may we understand what that looks like and live that out. Not for our glory, not for our fame, but for Your fame. May we be light. You've made us light, but we remember the purposes so the world would see our good works and glorify You in heaven. May that be reality. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.